If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. I never imagined that anyone had opposed Christianity. I had just thought that Constantine had seen the cross in the sky, said, phew, we can all be Christians, and the whole empire had given this resounding cheer, sighed, brought their crosses out of the cupboards and relaxed. But it's absolute rubbish. I mean, at the time when Constantine converted, whatever that meant, under 10% of the empire were Christian. That was Catherine Nixie talking to Edith Hall about her new book on Christianity in the classical world. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today we're going to be talking about the rise of Christianity in the early centuries AD, and the impact that it had on the classical world. This is the subject of a new book entitled The Darkening Age by the journalist and classicist Catherine Nixie. She was joined to discuss the book by Edith Hall, Professor of Classics at King's College London. Their conversation begins with the Roman Emperor Constantine, whose apparent conversion to Christianity in the early 4th century was a key milestone in the development of the faith. And the two then move on to look at what the growth of Christianity meant to existing societies at this time. Let's hear what they had to say. I'm Catherine Nixie. I've just written a book called The Darkening Age, The Christian Destruction of the Classical World. And I also work at The Times as a radio critic and editor. And I'm Edith Hall, and I'm Professor of Classics at King's College London and I recently published a history of the ancient Greeks which culminated in the overthrow of pagan Greek civilization by the early Christians. Can we just start with a couple of uh, things that um, I didn't get fully clarified you may well have clarified them but I didn't quite didn't come out for me. Do you think that Constantine the Great who is really usually held as the first great Christian emperor do you think that he was actually converted spiritually to Christianity or do you think he was doing something political because he saw that was the way the wind was blowing and that was how to consolidate imperial power? It's such an interesting question that one. When you read when you read the life of Constantine, you what you look what you think of today as this great spiritual conversion, he looks up into the sky, he sees a flaming cross, you know, that, that all that's missing is the singing angels. And when you read the life of Constantine, it's almost like this academic, this, this accounting that he does. He's like, well, I've got to fight a battle. I don't totally know that I'm going to win. How am I going to make sure that my troops beat them? Well, there's this great new powerful God. It's, it's an incredibly analytical sort of act on his part. It doesn't seem to be a spiritual conversion. I mean, plus he's a, in many ways, slightly suspicious man. He, whether he actually boiled his wife in the bath, as everybody says, is, is I mean, who knows what happened, but he is, he's certainly not what you would call a good and holy, simple man. And yet he's the one who, on whom it all pivots. He's the one who turns the empire from facing one way to facing another. And he does it fast. And he does it pretty pretty soon with, with added levels of violence. I don't know. What do you think? Um, I, I tend to the view that he was uh, a fairly cynical manipulator of public opinion and that he was sitting on the exact cusp where it the majority, actually, of the ruling class were becoming sympathetic mm-hmm. as opposed to the um, underdogs and, and the slaves and, and the poor who were probably certainly in the non-Greek world, in, in the original um, um, cradle of Christianity, I think, were the sitting targets for this kind of messianic <laughs> faith with a, a promise of an afterlife. But um, I've always been very, very sceptical about him. I mean, I think his mother seems to have uh, been... Um, converted. I, I would be, yeah, believe that she him was. Him his mother and Augustine's mother. Seem it, exactly. <laughs> and I think it's it is very attractive um, to, to 
women of a, of a certain kind in mm-hmm. antiquity because they've always uh, been held to have a particularly kind of spiritual bond. You know, it'd be very um, numinously in contact with higher powers and so on. But I'm very, very sceptical about him. And the flamboyance of the sort of conversion miracles, as you say, the sort of yes. signs in the sky and you, thou shalt put Chairo, which is the sign, the alphabetic sign of Christ on your shields to beat the enemy Maxentius at, at, at the bridge. It almost seems as though he'd been in consultation with a, a sort of PR company. Yeah, a rebranding. <laughs> yeah, this, is, exactly. this is great. It's all been a bit sort of shabby around the edges and we're going to do this new thing. And, and then he builds these enormous churches yeah. and then it's, it's full of glitter and glitz. And I mean, he's suspicious for other reasons because at another time in his life, he was said to have seen a vision of the god Apollo. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely not been a Christian, no. like, waiting at the marks until this. And the... But that, that, I suppose, is my only... It, it's not a criticism, but in my response to this book is that you say at the beginning uh, that, that the major theorists who are all sort of basically post-Marxist of the extraordinarily epistemic shift that uh, pagan classical culture through to monotheistic, feudal Christian culture, you know, was all about economic forces and it was all about... Um, uh, different kinds of uh, pressures coming from uh, other kinds of modes of production outside the Roman Empire and fragmentation and the difficulty of actually keeping up lines of communication. It's been a sort of socio-economic explanation. You're saying that's sort of not good enough. These guys were actually terrifying. They really believed it. You're actually trying to get us away from the material base explanations. Mm -hmm. But I wonder how you see that translating into ideology. It's that how do people on the ground actually turn what's actually economic shifts into something terribly personal and spiritual to them. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's true. It's that it relationship is, it is that fascinates a, yeah, it, is a, it is a really, enig- particularly in his case, he's such an enigma. What did he really think? Yeah. Do we know? I mean, he has, his biographer says he has it from his own mouth. Like, you know, he says, oh, I th- would have thought that story would be rubbish had I not had it from his, his own mouth. Yeah. yeah. And... I mean, he is a peculiar guy, Constantine. Yeah. What, what is driving him? He does build these huge churches, but equally, you know, the way he's styled so godlike himself, he allows a temple to be built to the, the imperial family. Yeah. I mean, what's going on there? He must have known that would look like that he was, look like he was indirectly saying that he was divine himself. I mean, so much about him is so suspicious. But like, I mean, what pattern did he have to follow in a way? I, d- I thought you gave Julian slightly short shrift as well. I know it was. I so Julian, Julian so the Julian. apostate is the last pagan emperor. It is after Constantine and some of his relatives just have uh, you know, established Christianity basically as the religion of the Roman Empire. They then have this renegade relative who tries desperately to shore up the old religion and, 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 and the old philosophy. And I, I expected you to be a bit more interested in him. I was fascinated by him. <laughs> but I, I think Athanasius got it right. Bishop said he was, he's just a little cloud that will soon be gone. So Christianity already feels it's on the march. It's going somewhere. It's, it's getting rid of all these, these old pagans. And then suddenly along comes this incredibly brief reign of this formerly Christian, now vehemently pagan emperor yeah. who has sort of slightly recreated paganism in this interesting Christian form. Um, but then, you know, he gets killed by a spear, sent by God, <laughs> or whoever. And, and so it's, and, your, it's your victory the, to the Galilean. But, I mean, he only ruled for two and a half years or something. It was very, very short, as you say, and he was only in his, his, his early 40s, I think. Incredibly young. And so it, what if he had lived to 90? I, if he had lived to 90, I think he would have won. I think he would have turned it back. He was fervent enough. I mean, I think he—he's—he's. He's, I think he's a bit understudied. I'm a big fan of Julian, and everyone. And he was such a peculiar man, and, and he was sort of awkward socially. He didn't seem to fit his own skin. When he got up to spoke, speak, people would laugh at him. I mean, it's hard not to like him, for all of these reasons. And he was passionately against the prevailing tide. He'd been really brought up very strongly, as a Christian, and had rebelled against it. Um, but then he died too young and then all of his, his changes were overturned. And, yeah. and he, he lived to see that, see what, in a sense, what he was struggling against. You know, you get these accounts of him going and trying to see a temple and finding that, that actually everyone's just sort of drifted away from it by that point anyway. Yes, and he seems to have been quite an ascetic himself. I mean, he's, he's, he's laughed at by the you know, people of Antioch for, for being a sort of yes. a hairy barbarian, yeah. not a... Beautiful, effete, dancing yes. Greek. Yeah, like, chic plucked like, Antiochian. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So he, they may have actually thought he was nearer to a Christian than a 
So in a way, it was a world of pleasure-loving people and, and aesthetics, because there were philosophical aesthetics as, yes. w- as yeah. well. Yeah, And did you... Um, um, so, tell us about the uh, Celsus and, and Porphyry. T- tell us about the voices that we find so hard to hear, which are from the highly intellectual, highly sophisticated, very late defenders of uh, polytheism. So this book started with one of the questions in my mind was, what did, what did the Romans and Greeks think of the Christians? You just don't know. You never get taught it. As being, I was brought up as a Catholic. My mother was a nun and my father was a monk. And I never imagined that anyone had opposed Christianity. I had just thought that Constantine had seen the cross in the sky, <laughs> said, phew, we can all be Christians. And the whole empire had given this resounding cheer, sighed, brought their crosses out of the cupboards and relaxed. But it's absolute rubbish. I mean, at the time when Constantine converted, whatever that meant, under 10% of the empire were Christian. 90% had to be converted. And according to them, they did it within 100 years. Now, that's not true. But something happened and something happened fast. And that's when you get into the smashing of temples. And so my book opens with the temple of Palmyra, a temple in Palmyra, being attacked by these stinking black-robed well, by, by somebody. And that the suspicion is that it's probably these people who are written about these terrifying bands of zealots, these stinking black-robed monks who run across the Syrian countryside, smashing temples down with iron bars, their hands and their feet if they have nothing else, smashing the statues, cursing the idolaters, as they call them, as they do so. Now, the other... Th- so you lose a huge, huge amount of art in this period. What we would call art, it's, it's been described as the greatest destruction of art that human history had ever seen. It was enormous and frightening for those on the wrong side, terrifying and disastrous for for the future, for future archaeologists (laughs) and for future appreciators of these things. But the other thing that you lose is dissenting voices. The growth of orthodoxy Mm. is, is one of the, I think, sadder even than the statues in the Parthenon being smashed, which was also done by Christians, is I think the Crap, uh, clamping down that they do yeah. on dissent in every form, mm-hmm. and one of the peop- one of the voices who, by a miracle, has survived is this early critic of Christianity called Celsus, mm-hmm. who it's impossible not to like him. Mm-hmm. He is so robust, so bawdy. He he wrote, was writing in about two seventy, they think. We don't know very much about him, I should say, because his books were all destroyed. And there was a fellow critic of his called Porphyry who wrote an even bigger attack, and his books have completely gone. There's only just a snippet here and there in Augustine where he says things like, it's absurd, who believes that Noah could survive inside... Noah, that um, Jonah could survive inside the belly of a whale. I mean, that's just nonsense. Who but a fool would believe that? But we have a lot of this philosopher called Celsus. He was probably writing in Rome, Mm -hmm. do we think? Um, and he launches this monumental and vitrionic attack on the Christians. He says... I think he's probably Alexandrian, actually. Do you think? Yeah. Right. Um, his, his knowledge of certain things and to do Jewish books that right. were in the Library of Alexandria and ah. so on. He may have been writing it in Rome, may well have been writing it in Rome, but so I think he's an Alexandrian right. intellectual, probably. And you think, he, yeah, um, and he probably went into the and Library I, of Alexandria. And I too, I too find him um, very, very uh, appealing. Um, he's so funny, isn't he? I mean, that's the thing. He's funny, and that's go. Yeah, he's funny. But the, uh, I mean, I think for a lot of people, the um, an important text here for for, for 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 as a way into your book is actually Monty Python's Life of Brian. Yeah, completely. because uh, I've never I've tried to investigate. There are so many little details in that plot that could only have come from one of the very few non-Christian, you know, Greek-speaking intellectuals like, like Lucian and, and, and Celsus on, uh, he must have been the bastard of a Roman soldier, Jesus Christ must have been the bastard of a Roman soldier, and so on. I'm absolutely clear that the Pythons must have studied patristic history at uh, Cambridge. I've never figured out which one it was, but they must have read Celsus and they yes. must have read Lucian's Is Life it- of Peregrinus because... That's where the idea of the con artists. Yeah, they um, echo each other they, so they well. Really, and Lucian, really... Lucian wrote this very fierce, very acerbic satire on on this guy called Peregrinus, who <laughs> goes around preaching platitudes, wearing his hair long, telling people, you know, telling people that he knows the right way to live. And after he dies, 
um, he immolates himself, doesn't he? Jumping onto a, jumping onto a pyre, and and Lucian, Lucian seems to be there watching. Is it? Can we? Can we... Well, it, it's not Peregrinus. It's actually the man who who had knew about Peregrinus. Who, who oh, of course, do, yeah, it's all that. through the mouth of yeah. But per Peregrinus himself, who is the the fraudulent peddler of a, a soteriological, you know, a, a, a faith that means you will get saved and and have an afterlife. Um, it's it, it's it is tantamount to, to blasphemy if, if, if you are a Christian mm. because he, he actually ends up uh, where he does in, 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 in the Levant because of his, he's a sex criminal. I mean, he's actually a sex criminal who ends up on the run and then actually gets taken in by some completely stupid Christians uh -huh. who, who misinterpret things about him and he realises whatever he says they're taking down as, as, as gospel That's truth. Gospel. But, I mean, it is, it is absolutely toxic. And my father is a, um, a, an ordained Anglican priest and I can well remember in my childhood his absolute horror at this film. Really? Oh, yes, we were absolutely not allowed to see it as children. And in fact, it was banned in Devon by the entire county of Devon really until very yeah. recently yeah. for some re unrepealed rule because people That's like Mary amazing. Whitehouse. And they didn't even make him a sex criminal. Right. Right. He was just, you know, a, yeah. a silly yeah, yeah, boy, a, a very yeah. naughty boy. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the actual Lucianic version uh -huh. of the sort of fraud who yeah. ended up peddling these mystery religions. And that's another thing I thought you brought out very well was that, that actually there was a competition between mystery religions. I mean, we could all have been ISIS worshippers or Mithras. So, yes. so why don't you talk about those a bit? It was so close. Well, there were so many. There were so many of them. You know, there's... Well, Chelsea himself says, you know, the, the the empire isn't short on these pe these pucksters who go around preaching, telling telling them everyone that you know they alone know the right way to be saved. I mean, the world you, you seems that you could barely move in an Egyptian marketplace without bumping into someone else who could who promised that they were able to cure your diseases or or create meals. That's another one. All these echoes create meals out of thin air. Um, I mean, the Emperor Vespasian, wasn't it, who, who who seemed to be able to miracle heal various people and believed that he'd been sent to rule over the entire world, which, in his case, had a certain degree of truth to it. Cause he Do you think that's really the biggest difference between the old religion and culture and Christianity, though? It is the taking away of the emphasis on happiness and pleasure in this life and, as most ancient Greeks believed, a rather shadowy life in Hades mm. afterwards where you didn't actually suffer yeah you know it's not it's not it's not like the Christian hell but mm. but sort of just a pale imitation of the physical glories of the here and now and Christianity where however poor you were however terrible your life was however short it was however many tigers you were mauled to death by supposedly <laughs> in the amphitheater it didn't matter because you were going on to glory I mean do you think that's the the biggest sort of single shift in religious feeling it was it was certainly a massive shift yeah. and it's it was astonishingly powerful the yeah. idea people totally bought into this there's a, a sociologist who's written a paper on how yeah. how martyrdom wasn't was a completely rational choice yeah. if you are living in this world if your life is completely rubbish you have no money if you're a woman you can't you know you can't do anything you're a slave then die okay you'll have an unpleasant 24 hours but you'll go to heaven. And, and they write down that there are these people who are so keen to be martyrs that they don't even wait to be killed. They just commit suicide. Yeah. These extraordinary people in North Africa called the Circumcilians yeah. who terrified North Africa because they would just do things like set themselves on fire or jump off cliffs or drown themselves. And you get this line from somebody saying, because they love the name martyr more than and they because they want fame they kill themselves and and it's not just the name martyr although they did think that they would be famous forever it, it's not just um the fame it's it's that they're promised specifically by one text a hundred times what everyone else will yeah. get in heaven origin says you're going to get a hundred times the children a hundred times the oxen a hundred times everything if you kill your if you are if you commit suicide well not commit suicide become a martyr now then you will you will be lording it over everyone else in heaven. It's not a humble thing, martyrdom. No. There's this idea that they're these poor martyrs who are pursued. I mean, they, they took themselves to Roman governors. They'd say, they'd turn up ready chained and say, I'm ready to die as a martyrdom. This amazing, impossible not to like Roman governor who turns to them and says, you wretches, haven't you got cliffs you can jump off or ropes you can hang yourself with? Mm. You know, it's such, it's such a sort of kind of Roman efficient response to this bizarre, bizarre, and 
to many, utterly terrifying, inexplicable phenomenon of people who are yeah. totally happy to die for their faith. Yeah, I thought you brought that up beautifully. There's only 13 years out of 300. Yeah. Was it, were there active prosecution policies? Yeah, in place. And for the first... 13 out of 300. Which is nothing, absolutely nothing compared no. to what the Christians then did when they arrived. And and also in those 13 years, uh, as Gibbon put it, the annual consumption of martyrs was really pretty low. They, you know, hunt, how, how can we be sure of the figures? But hundreds, not thousands, they say. Mm. And the, the Roman governors would often go out of their way to try and, according to these tales, or it seems seems to be believed that the Roman governors would go out of their way to try and avoid executing these people. Pliny, in the first, first account we have from a non-Christian about the Christians, really doesn't want to kill them. You know, he will kill them, right? He's Pliny, he's a Roman, he has a job to do, he has a province to keep quiet. But he would really rather not. And you get these amazing martyrdom tales where um, the, the Roman governors say things like, are you sure you want to kill yourself? Look outside, it's a really sunny day. Well, what about your poor mother? Yeah, what about your yeah, poor yeah, mother? And about the, your... Yeah, <laughs> what about your poor mother? Your family will be sad, you I won't know. get married. And then they, they, the, the mothers in the martyrdom tales are delighted yeah. as one who picks her son's head up from the floor. So he's gone to glory. Yes, thank goodness. I what know. a proud mum. <laughs> Absolutely. The, um, um, I think what a lot of people don't really understand either about persecutions is that no ancient Roman governor or Greek governor or Syrian governor under the Roman Empire, whatever, uh, remotely cared what you actually believed inside your head either. They, no, they absolutely didn't care. It was all a matter of whether or not you attended public city sacrifices. Right. If you just came out and attended the public city sacrifice, which was of the old gods, it wasn't a matter of any kind of internal faith or, or belief. It was a matter of showing that you were a good citizen who was prepared to come along and just do the public thing. You know, it's a bit like Obama being made sure that he lowers, lowers his head, you know, during yeah. a prayer or something. Nobody cares what's on, inside his head. It's a matter of just obeying yeah, the public expectations. Sort of, and duty. they would not do this. Yeah. They would not do this. Yeah. And in fact, when then when they all get into power is when actually interrogating what's deep inside your head. Right. They that, actually did want to thought control and yes. stop people. I doing think because you like said that. is that the biggest the belief in yeah. heaven, is that the biggest? I think that I think the biggest was as you say, that change from it being like Obama dipping his head. I heard it like likened as in a sort of fifties text said something like yeah. standing up during the national anthem or yeah. something like that. It was just doing what you did to be a good citizen and not be... Not Nobody be cared if you were a Republican inside your head. Yeah. No, exactly. Where is this? This opening windows into men's souls, souls this yeah. really frightening thing where mm. where actually actually you could still be and they want to know what's in your heart and they're going to hunt, hunt through your house and they're going to look through your books and they're going to never believe you and not give you a proper trial. That's the other thing. Yeah, you know, they, they bang on and on. They, go, they talk a lot about the, the trials that were made of the Christians but they didn't even extend that same courtesy in return. You could be, you know, within, well, it was it was a longer period, but within a certain amount of time, then you could just be strung up pretty rapidly yeah. for people suspecting you were a pagan. Do you find it depressing? I mean, you talk quite a lot about superstition and, it, and even old Plutarch then in second century AD <laughs> and, and a, a thoroughgoing Greek intellectual I mean, he's a classic case. He's t totally, beautifully read in, in Plato, knows his Aristotle, knows his Stoics, knows his Epicureans, you know, knows his Cynics, is, by the way, practices a local priesthood in, in Thebes because it's the right thing to do yeah. to be a good member of the community. He can contain all of that in his head. Yeah. But the one thing he can't stand, given the incredible advances that have been made by Greek empirical science... It's just Darth superstition. Mm. He can't stand it. And this is terribly, terribly appealing to the post-Darwinian yes. mind. Yeah. That the, the, just, just, just stupid superstitions and demonology and, and people believing in witchcraft mm -hmm. and, 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 and miracles and all this sort of thing just doesn't add up. Do you think that's why people are beginning to get, like yourself, that this is beginning to become more interesting? Is it because we're in a sort of 21st century cosmic battle, if you like, between a, a scientific, rational outlook and uh, really very fanatical religious faiths of, of all kinds. I think that's completely true, because you, you have that feeling when you read books from, say, the 
40s, if you read C.P. Snow, you have a feeling that they're all writing these books thinking that we're on the cusp of this great atheistic revolution. We're all going to sort of step outside it like we've stepped outside, you know, TB or like we've stepped outside, like penicillin has cured has cured so many illnesses. Yeah. They feel that you get the sense that they feel that they have cured religion with rational yeah. thought. And it has just hasn't happened. And it, if anything, as you say, it seems that people are becoming in many ways more fundamentalist. And so it, it's really interesting to look back at this point at which people, you know, almost the same forces were mm. at play when there were there were these people saying at this time, the world is, no, you don't need to worry about God because the world is made of atoms. And God didn't make man. It was just like the creatures that were better fitted, like the fox and his cunning and the dog and his speed. They they lived on to survive and pass on their yeah. trails. And that that text almost vanishes. That's one of the ones mm. that's attacked by Constantine. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, I think that is why it's appealing. It, feel, it feels there are unpleasant... And just last year, um, Tim Whitmarsh, who's professor of Greek culture at Cambridge, wrote, wrote his book on, on ancient atheism, mm. Um, yeah, which true. makes similar yeah. arguments to yours, but using a very different way that there has actually been for... Uh, you know, se- several um, thousand years, um, a, a, an alternative way of thinking about the world. Yes, um, and that that has been very much silenced. I I I think the rewriting of the history of philosophy by the early Christians, for myself, one of the things I was most distressed to discover was that Aristotle, who absolutely believed in uh, that though they. He thought there probably were gods out there somewhere. Mm. They did not intervene in human life mm. at all. You know, there's just no point in worshipping them and expecting them to help you or yep. punish you or anything else like that. We had to take responsibility. Yeah. But he was um, fingered by Tertullian and his friends who invented a tradition that he had actually committed suicide at I the didn't end. Know that. Yes, that he had committed well, suicide. Written because he couldn't understand the tides of the Europus. So there's these very strange tides between Evia, Euboea and the Greek mainland. I've been there. They are extraordinary. And they have not yet been, even now, been fully scientifically understood because mm-hmm. there shouldn't be any tides in the Mediterranean. And yeah, there are these, this is what we, yeah. we always have this no, discussion no, no, there when are I go enormous to tides. <laughs> and it was one of those conundra of science is uh-huh. the tides of the Europus. Uh-huh. And the early Christians invented a tradition that he had said as he died... He plunged himself into the Europus, saying, since Aristotle cannot take the Europus, the Europus let him take, I believe in God. They even needed him as the greatest intellectual of antiquity. They had to have him convert, which was the only reason he became acceptable, as he did, to to the medieval ecclesiastics. That's so interesting. And they they often invented (laughs) these unpleasant ends for people who they didn't like, you know, people who are are forever falling over and having their guts split open. I think Lucian, didn't he? he Aristotle would turn in his grave. I really believe that, to think that people believed he had converted at the last minute. Because he was minute. so, it, it was, yeah. I, I was started this, saying this before, but he was so beautiful, it's such a beautiful mind, you get yeah. it so strongly when you read his stuff, and yeah. it was reading him, actually, that suddenly made me think that what my parents had told me about how the Christians were the natural inheritors of the classical world, and that they carried on all this classical thought until the time when we could pick it up in the Renaissance, you know, I, I totally believe that. And I remember reading Aristotle, and I remember thinking, hang on. That, he doesn't feel like a proto-Christian in waiting to me. <laughs> I, I've, I've just finished a book, which will, will be out early next year, on on Aristotle for now, because I, I mm. think he he is the one whose uh, secular morality is what yeah. we need to, to replace yeah. um, the yeah. uh, uh, Christian and Islamic fundamentalism. That, that wonderfully inventive, kind of constantly, yeah. constantly questing mind, which is so the opposite of Christianity. In, yeah. in Augustine's Confessions, he has this terrible and telling bit where he describes himself being caught up by watching a spider eat something in its web, and he says, that's a sin. <laughs> he says, that is wicked, because that is taking me away from the greater contemplation of God. And he just dispatches away scientific inquiry he hated. And he also, he hated, they hated the atomists, because if you believed in the atomic theory, you wouldn't believe that God had made anything. So they, they suffered, particularly these papers of these people who said that the world was made of at- at- atoms. They were burnt preferentially. When um, I, I very much enjoyed your writing about Hypatia, sometimes called Hippatia, who is uh, one of the very few female philosopher scientists of antiquity and um, was killed by um, 
um, some very, very angry Christians in ancient Alexandria when she was actually leading mathematician of the um, Alexandrian Library and the Temple of, of Serapis, which is where those things happen, died a very gruesome death, accused of witchcraft, which was typical. But um, you write very beautifully about her. But I'm very interested that in 2009, Rachel Weiss, who's a wonderful actress mm. um, with two very important Spanish directors, you know, made this film, mm. Agora, yes, about the life of Hypatia. Yeah. But she actually is on record of say, as saying she made it because she wanted to combat fundamentalism now and had been particularly upset by one of the rulings in um, one of the southern states of the USA about, about not teaching Darwinism and evolution. She was actually quite specifically right. motivated to make right. the film. I had no idea. So yeah. it's not... It's a film about destroying enlightenment. I mean, it, that that it is, is the angle she... Yeah. Yeah. And, and destroying enlightenment by religion. There's a real tendency to say, no, it wasn't the Christians. It was she got caught up in this yeah. sort of political muddle. But the people who killed her, they were Christians. Yeah. They, were, they were these incredibly frightening troop. And of, uneducated. And uneducated. It's and a they, lot they, about education. A lot about education. A lot about jealousy. She was brilliant. She was a woman. She was beautiful by all accounts. Um, people came to her house to see her. And they said these Christians started saying, oh, no, she's she's a witch. She's, yeah. she's using these signs. Haven't you seen she uses an astrolabe? That's that's not maths. That's that's the symbols <laughs> of the devil. And it's, as you say, as, as I didn't know that was what made Rachel Weisz want to yeah, make no, that film. No, no, that, it is horrifyingly gross. But what's I mean, quite a good way for people to accompany your book would be to watch, on the yeah. one hand, The Life of Ryan, and on the other hand, Agora. Yeah. Um, the because it would give you two very different insights for people interested yes. in precisely this period yeah. of history. But they're both, I mean, they're both well worth watching and they yeah. both capture, they yeah. both really capture two two different points in this. One is the kind of robust humour mm. of the classical world as it turns its force on these obedient and and faith-based people. They, they hated faith. There's this amazing bit where Galen <laughs> criticises Moses and he's like, but he doesn't show any proof. He just yeah. says, God says. <laughs> Like to Galen, that's manners. He was like the ultimate empiricist. And Absolutely. What he what complicated reasons he wasn't really an empiricist. He hated empiricists because they were a different school. But empirical uh, <laughs> method. Empirical method. But he he just couldn't get over these people who were just saying, "Oh, I just believe it," and it's true. I mean, that was to Galen. That was the pits. No, but no. that was what took over. But that is the whole point. That is the whole point of Christianity: is that you take it on faith. Yes, and, and that you was have what. To. That was actually what. That was the bit where I thought I. I was brought up religious, went to church, said prayers before every prayers before lunch and dinner, mm. um, and I always, you know, I loved it. It's, you know, I love Bach. I like churches. Who doesn't like a nice cathedral? But I couldn't make the, what they call the leap of faith. Well, I mean, that that is very interesting. I mean, the, the 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 two things that they Christians seem to object to most in sort of everyday life of of, of the, the unconverted uh, <laughs> is 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 visual de- is is statues and acting, which are two forms of representing mm. things that aren't actually there, um, artistically, mm. um, and singing. And, and that's the, absolutely fascinating to me because we associate churches with beautiful music mm. and rousing music mm. and, and spirituality heightened by music and indeed spectacle if you're in either the Orthodox or the Roman Catholic faith as yeah. opposed to a Calvinistic one. <laughs> but uh, can you explain that to me? What did they find so so wrong with, with beautiful images? What is what is wrong with a beautiful song? They were they, it's utterly mysterious, isn't it? Because you could say you could you would imagine they'd be able to argue it like a Catholic. Yeah. You know, it's elevating, it helps to, it helps to inspire you. It, yeah. You know, it, it, it takes over your soul. But I suppose that was it. It takes over your soul. It was competition. Anything that was competition was being stamped out. Plus, there's that great J- Jacob... Um, I never know how you pronounce it. Saruk. Saruk. Yeah. It's spelled in so many different ways. I'm never sure which... But um, Jacob of Saruk quote, where he he hates them going along with their sexy music, like moving their loins in time to the music. And they particularly hated these shoes that would rattle as you stood on them. That's the ancient pantomime thought- dancing, as it's called, which was actually ballet. It was actually dancing classical myths mm. it was more like ballet dancing but it was v- deliberately very erotic and it was also it it you did it 
it was mime, you did almost all the acting through your body, and it was actually developed in order to be able to play it to people of different languages all over the empire, because you could go and watch a ballet of a myth about Adonis or Apollo uh, without worrying about the words, because you could understand it. So it's actually a rather marvellous invention. But what's extraordinary about him, Jacob of Sarug is sitting way up, way up the Syrian valley um, in the 5th century AD. I mean, we're getting even late, you know, really, really late. Um, and in fact, the only manuscript is just up the road in the British Library. I've, I've seen it. Um, and his fifth homily is against the dancers. But what's fascinating there is he's actually talking to his own flock because he can't stop his own flock, who are dedicated Christians, from going to watch the uh, old mythological shows. And they're clearly saying, you can tell from his polemic, we don't believe in those stories, but we really enjoy it, right? Mm. And he's saying all the reasons why mm. that's not good enough, right? So they're really just asking for tolerance because what's inside their own heads is fine. But the fact he's having to do that, and the myths are recognisably metamorphosis myths from sort of the Ovidian mm. tradition. You know, it, it's Apollo chasing Daphne mm. and, and Zeus turning into golden rain. It's a quite fascinating document. But he does actually pick out actors dressed with padded breasts as one of the, the greatest, um, uh, you know, d d sort of, yeah, pretending to be women and, and sexy And they didn't dancing. like that. One of the things they didn't like about the statues, wasn't it? Because bathhouses were full of, of beautiful <laughs> statues. Of, yes, sex. They didn't like sex at all. <laughs> And they'd be full of these beautiful statues of Aphrodite um, at, her to at her toilet, you know, kind of look, doing exactly what you were doing when you went to the baths. And they really suffered, these beautiful yeah. statues in the bathhouses. They would, they would chisel off her nipples. They would cut off her nose. They, they really attacked, they attacked the erotically appealing yeah. statues before they attacked the others. And that bathhouses were, were really targeted, weren't yeah. they? And they I, I, but Clement of Alexandria is one of the wrote an entire work on what was wrong with statues. <laughs> where he, he, he listed no females. <laughs> you don't want to go to him. This is a great Bible of iconoclasm. But as I said, that, 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 that clearly got rejected very early by both Roman yes. Catholicism and Orthodoxy. That was, that, that was a short-lived fanatical thing because they started making on their own beautiful yes. uh, images and music. Less well, but yes, yeah. eventually. But one of the interesting things is that Constantine does it. He nicks... There's some of the stuff yes. that he he tells he tells people as soon as he converts, whatever that means, he tells people to go and take the statues, break open the temples, take out their statues, and then he's like, apart from the really nice ones, I'll have them. So, so the tripods from Delphi, they they turn up there. The the muses turn up in Constantinople, and the the Athena, the most famously the great statue of Athena outside the Acropolis in Athens, that's shipped back to Constantinople, which gives philosophers, Greek philosophers, non-Christian philosophers, nightmares. They, they dream that Athena has come to them asking for, asking for shelter. Mm. But Constantinople turns into what, what somebody describes as a wonderful open-air museum yeah. of the arts, which is, which is one way of describing it when you've stolen the world's artwork. Well, and, then, and, and, and Paladas, who's my, yeah. probably my favourite of all these late uh, opponents of Christianity, is uh, our very last Greek, writer of Greek epigrammatic poems. And he's actually, he's a school teacher. A, a private tutor in Alexandria who's made his living, he says, out of teaching Pindar and Callimachus and all these great <laughs> Greek poets. And now he can't get anyone to hire him anymore. Mm. What's he going to do? He can't make a living because nobody wants... But he writes this beautiful poem in the mouth of some statues who've been melted down and turned into other statues and um, some Christian images of one kind or another. He actually writes it in their mouth that, hey, writing's on the wall, Paladas, just, just convert. You know? yeah. <laughs> We've done it. Yeah. You can do it too. But that's actually got that humour in it as well, as, as well as the, the sort of snarling cynicism about our beautiful, old, sophisticated literary culture just being demolished. Because you do get a sense, would you say this, because one of the, one of the things that you contend against when you write a book on this is centuries and centuries yeah. of Christianity yeah. telling you everyone was really happy. Those 90% of people who had to be converted within 100 years, they were, they were fine with that. And until, I mean, I, I, I'm sure that part of this is because until 1871, to be a fellow in an Oxford college, you basically had to be ordained. Yeah. And the church, you know, history is written by the winners. Their, vi their, win their, their victory was close on absolute. But mm. do you feel that academia has been slow in a way to listen to these, these voices? Do you think it's starting? Well, some have and some haven't. I mean, in, in general, it's, a, it's been a, a neglected little bit of history. Mm. Um, the sort of what 
when in fact it's the biggest epistemic shift, you know, since since, yeah. since the agrarian revolution in 10,000 BC. You know? <laughs> but um, you know, it's, it's bigger than Gutenberg. It's 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 bigger it's bigger than the internet. But um, I think, I mean, there were voices. There were always voices from Karl Marx onwards, mm. definitely, who said this was a false sort of ideology, a false consciousness mm. that's imposed in order to make a particular kind of feudal uh, structure. And my favourite quote of all time, which you've paraphrased in someone else's mouth it, it, in the book, was Geoffrey uh, de Santa Croix, the oh, author of, yeah. of, of the, the great mm. class struggle in the ancient Greek world, was a great expert on ancient slavery. And he used to go around lecturing on ancient slavery and little old lady piped up at the back, little devout lady, when one of these lectures. But we talked a lot about this, but what about the prosecution of the Christians and the persecution of the Christians? And he just said, too little, too late. And I just think that's just so perfect. <laughs> and he was already doing that. Um, so there have been, yes. and actually yeah. I think classicists have not been, <laughs> to defend my own profession for once, they have been politically very conservative mm. and elitist. They have not actually, most of them, been religious fanatics. Oh, and no, there's classic, a long and no proud history yeah. of uh, agnostic and radical um, mm. thinking amongst classical yeah. communities. There, there, there has, and I find it hard to defend my profession, but I'm going to just <laughs> on that particular thing. But theologi- I sometimes, I was quite shocked to read P- Peter Brown say, yeah. when he was talking about the demolition of one of the temples, he was actually, I think, it was just after writing about the Temple yeah. of Palmyra. He says, oh, we... We shouldn't over-amplify this. It might have just been a few people doing this quite quickly. You know, it doesn't take... Almost as if destroying, as they did that temple, or they famously destroyed the Temple Mm. of Serapis that you mentioned earlier, where Hypatia had had worked. The the most beautiful temple in the ancient world, it it was called, and the Christians destroyed it within a day. I mean, as if that didn't matter, as if... No, but we we see we we do see in the modern world when people are even destroying Palmyra that certain kinds of religious belief can 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 lead people into that sort of wholesale destruction. It actually happened at the English Reformation as well. Mm. I mean, it really yeah. really did. The yeah, churches and monasteries of this land were um, of breathtaking yeah. beauty. We we lost so much at that particular point um, for equally powerful ideological reasons as, as the economic base sort of mm. shifted so we have we have got that I'm told I, that Reading was one of the most beautiful cities in the world and it's difficult to believe <laughs> it was it, it was just really absolutely it's just a crumbling arch right, no it really really was but it was one of that's the where Usher was from, biggest biggest targets so can you imagine right. if you go up to Reading and it's just full of beautiful late medieval oh. monasteries instead of sort of concrete ring road yeah so extraordinary th- thought. It wasn't just them. <laughs> Did you ask me what what was the most important shift? Was it was it putting your happiness in the afterlife uh, as yeah. opposed to in this life? What would you say is the most important? That but that goes with that is the corollary because you've got to live the virtuous life to get that right. of shifting the control of your behaviour from external slave owners and. Uh, people who are richer than you, to the peasant, the feudal peasant mm. of the Byzantine period who's got to police themselves. Mm. They actually are free. They could walk out of the village, mm. if you see what I mean. And you suddenly get that anxiety, don't you? In the... Yeah, so all the, all the responsibility for your ethical action mm. is sort of dumped on you, mm. but you get the promised reward with that. But I find that quite fascinating because you can, you know... You, you can control entire populations if you have enough, uh, if, if you actually keep them completely unfree. Yep. Controlling them when they're theoretically free, mm-hmm. or at least technically free, as we are, <laughs> requires much more sophisticated, in some ways, ideological tools. Yes, and then you get the grace of the sermon yeah. and, the, and these extraordinary... And self-mortification and self-policing and yeah. people past it having to beat their children to tell the truth and everything, whereas yes. ancient pre-Christian little Greek children were actually praised for telling lies. They were trained in it. Odysseus is a hero. Clever, <laughs> right? It's like, you, you just had to figure out who to tell the lies to. Yeah. Those bad guys, of course you tell the lies. Yeah. So the whole ideological thing, and, and that's what fascinates me, is how for, you know, all the way through to the Reformation anyway, the um, feudalism was controlled by that kind of mind control mm-hmm. through the church. And having myself had, and I'm perfectly happy for this to go in a, in, in a, a broadcast, but having myself had a Christian upbringing which uh, attempted to make me internalise a lot of really quite extraordinary mm. 
rules and ones that were completely against my own self-interest in terms of sexism um, mm-hmm. and so on. I, I, I do know exactly how that works. Yeah. And it can, it's you know, incredibly efficient, yeah, isn't it? It is. My and fa- it's not just giving me a child by the age, you know, I'll have made them Catholic by the age of yeah. seven. It, it's really any form of, of, of fanatical religion. But they do it, they, they do it with, they have foot soldiers, don't they, around <laughs> your brain. And there's, there's these amazing sermons where they say, you know, God is watching you. And also, yeah. also like, as well as God, your neighbour, because if your neighbour <laughs> doesn't report you, and then they will burn in hell. If your neighbour doesn't report... So if you go to the games in the theatres, there's this amazing Against the Games and Theatres, one of yeah. John Chrysostom's greatest... greatest Tirades. Yeah, t- yeah. Um, where he says... And, and the, it's clear that his, his congregation, a bit, like, a, a bit like Jacob's, have been having an absolute ball. It was Good Friday and they all disappeared off to the races or the theatre. Yeah. And he's outraged, you know, how, how could you possibly go, particularly on that day? And yeah. you can imagine them all sort of shifting uncomfortably in their seats. And then he, he has this horror, this, this terrible power over them because he, he's their kind of gatekeeper to heaven. And he says, if anyone tell, you know, if you, if I find out you've been going, you're out, right? <laughs> you're, not, you're not coming to my church. You're not going to heaven. And if, you, if, if somebody tells me that you did, then I'll know. And if you know that somebody else did and you don't tell me, you're going to hell too. Mm. So he, the whole, and then they start to sort of put it in, into, the, into, the, into the laws, into the Justinian particularly, does this, turning the whole of the empire into, into the spies, spies for God. That was Catherine Nixie in conversation with Edith Hall. The Darkening Age, the Christian destruction of the classical world, was published today, the 21st of September, in the UK by Macmillan. And in the US, it's due to be published next April by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Edith Hall's latest book is The Ancient Greeks, Ten Ways They Shaped the Modern World, which was published in paperback last year by Vintage. And you can read a version of this interview in issue six of BBC World Histories, which is now on sale. This issue also includes articles on North Korea, the history of nuclear weapons, homosexuality through the ages, and the Vietnam War, among many other things. You can get hold of BBC World Histories in all good news agents, or you can order directly from us in the special editions section of buysubscriptions.com. And if you found this discussion of religious history interesting, then you'll want to look out for an interview with David Starkey about the Reformation. That's due to appear in the November issue of BBC History magazine, on sale in the middle of next month. And we'll also be airing a version of it on this podcast. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now it's time for the latest history news with our website assistant, Rachel Dinning. A German submarine that sank during the First World War has been discovered off the coast of Belgium. The U-boat is in good condition and is believed to contain the bodies of its 23 crew members. 
It is so far unclear what caused the vessel to sink, but one theory suggests that it was hit by a mine that was tethered to the bottom of the sea. The exact location of the wreck is currently being kept secret to discourage trophy hunters. In other news, a British tapestry showing the colonisation of North America has come under scrutiny for the way it depicts Native American people. The New World tapestry was stitched by more than 250 volunteers in Devon and Dorset between 1980 and 2000. Sections of the work are currently available to look at online and may be put on display in 2020 as part of plans to mark the 400-year anniversary of the Mayflower's departure from Plymouth. However, Jacqueline Parter, Executive Director of the National Congress of American Indians, told the BBC that the tapestry's depictions of Native Americans were inaccurate and should be removed from the public domain. It shamelessly perpetuates a centuries-long artistic tradition that seeks to portray Native American people as subhuman, she said. The tapestry's designer, Tom Moore, dismissed the claims as rubbish, telling the BBC that the images are based on watercolour drawings by a 16th century artist. Meanwhile, an exceptionally rare ancient crucifix has been unearthed by an amateur metal detectorist from the UK. The two-centimetre-long lead object was found last Sunday in the village of Skidbrook, Lincolnshire, by Tom Redmain. It bears an image of Christ on the cross and is thought to be around 950 years old. Archaeologist Adam Daubney from Lincolnshire County Council told the BBC that the crucifix is believed to have been made overseas and therefore can tell us something about cross-channel trade and religion. OK, well that's about all for today, but please do listen in on Monday where we'll be talking about the legacy of Queen Victoria. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.